This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Economist. I'm Peter Martin. And I'm Gigi Foster. Hello. Gigi, last year when we began discussing COVID, and even early this year when we were discussing COVID, in one sense the debate was simple. It was horrific but simple. You, Gigi, would say there are costs to lockdowns and measures to fight COVID as well as benefits and we need to weigh them up against each other. I would say true enough, but if we get in early and hit COVID hard with overwhelming force, which we did, and it was as good as eliminated, we were out of what I like to call the Gigi Foster world. We had neither COVID nor lockdowns. That was then. It was a good Christmas. We had one of the best health outcomes in the world, one of the quickest economic recoveries in the world. It was even like that when we started this series of The Economist 13 weeks ago. But now, with much of Australia locked down and with Delta... You're about to tell me I was right. You're increasingly right now, Gigi Foster. What I said then is increasingly wrong now. We are heading back to the world economists live in, the world of trade-offs, where to get something, freedom, the ability to work, we need to give up something, and those things might entail uh, lives lost to COVID. It's an awful situation. I hope we're not there yet, but we're moving closer to uh, a Gigi Foster world. Yeah, Peter, well, I never for a moment thought that there were not real trade-offs, both in the short run and the long run. I mean, locking people down in their homes is a brings massive costs immediately to them. You know, social isolation brings mental stress, and, and that stress should be costed. Yes, and so I was, we didn't need to do it for a long time, last year. So. Well, but even if we don't, you still have to ask the question, what is the cost of doing it versus what is the benefit? And I've still not seen that analysis from a government. And of course, as you say, the international borders, even in you know late last year, when, when you're saying that, you know, we had supposedly eliminated it, they were still closed. So we weren't back to normal by any means, and we didn't have an end game. So yeah, unfortunately, uh, we, we do now have to realize uh, what I think we should have realized more than a year ago, um, that we, we do have these trade-offs to look at. And we have to ask, you know, what's the right policy for people? And, and do lockdowns really save lives. I mean, we've had demography and geography on our side, being an island nation. That's been very lucky. We've been the lucky country. Um, have we handled this correctly? I would say no. But, you know, history will tell. I hope that, like Houdini, we can continue to escape that situation. And I, I should revel in it, I suppose, like you, because, you know, the, the world of economists is the world of trade-offs. I'm, I'm still hoping it's not too late. In this, the final program in this season of The Economists on RN. We're about to be joined by two people with ideas about how to manage the trade-offs that are looming. Ideas about how to get out of this or how to live with this with the least possible damage. Gigi is a professor of economics. I'm an economics editor. And our first guest is one of Australia's leading health economists, Dr Stephen Duckett, a former head of Australia's health department and the current head of the Grattan Institute's Health and Aged Care Program. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure, Peter. So, Stephen, can I take you back to, say, this time last year? Did it seem to you then as if we would not need to make hard choices and that the trade-off I was describing even earlier that year between the estimated net benefits of wholesale lockdowns versus the estimated net benefits of pursuing a less draconian policy didn't really need to be considered? 
Well, Gigi, I think it's fair to say there have always been trade-offs. As you pointed out a minute ago, a lockdown has consequences in terms of mental health, domestic violence, drug and alcohol issues and so on in health terms as well as benefits in health terms. Uh, so if you just looked at it on the health trade-offs, I think most people, I think everybody would have said, yes, we have those uh, health costs of lockdowns, but we also have health benefits of lockdowns and on balance, the health benefits outweigh the health costs. And what are the uh, mitigating strategies we need to do to reduce the health costs of lockdowns? What do we need to do to improve mental health and, and so on? So I think there have always been trade-offs, even on the health side. The big debate was whether there was a health economy trade-off, that is, was the public health direction, that is locking down, was that in the long term the right thing for the economy as well? And I think the international literature and the Australian evidence is that those two things weren't in conflict, that is, they were pointing in the same direction, so there then, wasn't really a back trade-off. Then. Back then. What's changed yeah. or, or is changing your mind about that or, or has your mind changed? I still think the public health direction of lockdowns should lead to a, a shorter economic impact. But where we're now at a situation is I don't think either New South Wales or Victoria can get to a COVID zero situation in, in contrast to the view I had earlier this year and certainly for all of last year. Meaning that we need to trade off lockdowns, at least until we're very highly vaccinated, against lives and lockdowns almost by definition can't go on forever. No, if you go back to last year, always the view was, I think of everybody, that lockdowns and the public health restrictions in place and, and at the Christmas time last year, no public health restrictions, was always a temporary situation until we could be fully vaccinated. And the unfortunate thing is because of the stuff up of the vaccination choices and rollout, we've now got the the worst of all worlds. That is, we've got uh, the Delta variant spreading wildly in uh, New South Wales and Victoria, and we've not got high enough levels of vaccination. You have done calculations at the Grattan Institute of those trade-offs and worked out how many deaths we should be prepared to accept in order to get the level of freedom that we would want. How many deaths do you come up with and at what point do we uh, allow those freedoms? Peter, a better way of phrasing it is what level of deaths would the public accept? And we, this is a judgment call. And in our modelling, we said you could probably achieve something loosely like herd immunity if 80% uh, of the whole population was vaccinated. and That's, that's completely different up. to the government's forecast, which you're talking about 80% or 70 to 80% of uh, a much smaller group of the population, a, a, a 16, 16 plus. plus. Yeah. So you mean 80% so, of the entire population, which population. is how much of the 16 pluses? So up around the 90% of the 16 plus. But Nin the, 90 the point, to 100, the, I think. Yeah, yeah. So the point we were making was that at that sort of level, you'd expect about 2,000 deaths a year or so. And that's roughly the number of deaths that we had from the flu in 2010. So we said, look, the Australian population obviously accepted that level of deaths in 2010 from the flu. It seems not unreasonable for them to accept that level of deaths from COVID in 2021. 
So I want to go back to this notion of the cost-benefit um, analysis that you say people always accepted should sort of should have been done to justify the the lockdown policy. And as you may know, I submitted a, a draft cost-benefit analysis to the Victorian Parliament in August 2020, in which I estimated that lockdowns were causing more loss than they were saving for a large range of reasons, from, from crowded out health care for things other than COVID to obviously the short run mental health, domestic violence losses, as you've mentioned, and disruptions to children's education and also lower GDP. So I'm really curious, what about the, the, the pain and the suffering that happens, the other costs of doing the lockdowns while we're supposedly waiting until this future time when we can you know, open up? I mean, how does that get captured, I guess? In, is my question in your modelling? So we didn't do a economic evaluation, uh, partly because essentially, as you'd know, they're, they're very, very, very hard to do in these circumstances because the trade-offs that we're talking about are to some extent unknown. Uh, if I just use one example, what we know from a lockdown is and what we demonstrated in Victoria last year is that you could eliminate the virus and you could get to zero with the alpha variant. And that not only stops deaths and not only stops hospitalizations, and even during the peak of the lockdown, the Victorian hospital system was not overwhelmed. If we'd not had the lockdown, the Victorian hospital system would have been overwhelmed in the way that New South Wales is facing uh, this year. But what we didn't know at the time, and to some extent what we still don't know, is the impact of long COVID. So that long COVID wasn't known about in the middle of last year when these lockdowns were happening. And so you've got to actually think about factoring in a whole lot of things that we had no information about, that we didn't actually know uh, was happening. So uh, we were making those decisions based on deaths and hospitalizations and, and the need to protect the hospital system. But in addition, we got benefits of reduced long COVID that were unanticipated, but would also need to be factored into any economic equation if you, if you thought that was the right thing to do. You're saying there's more to it than lives. There's, there's also long COVID, there's also mental health. Uh, the domestic violence, in fact, is clearly went up during uh, the lockdown, short as they were last year. Uh, mental health seems not to have been as bad as people were saying, but if the uh, no, suicides... No, I think that's are, not quite true. I think yeah. mental, mental health issues are significant. Uh, suicides didn't go up, but mental health issues did, and uh, they have a long-term impact. So um, I'm not saying the lockdowns were cost-free. They, they weren't, but I still think the 2020 lockdowns were a net health benefit. So I know you're saying that it's very difficult to estimate these things. And of course, that's that's always true in, in economics. You know, forecasting is a difficult thing, but we do feel we have a responsibility to try uh, to, to estimate these things. And one thing that I think you and I could both agree was very much known at the time um, is that COVID uh, deaths on average are occurring in the, in the elderly. And so when we think about how much are we saving in terms of quality adjusted life years, it's, it's an amount that's much less than sort of a whole 
whole life, right? And so this comes into my, my question to you, which is in your modeling, what value do you place on a life saved from COVID? Because of obviously, again, because the average COVID death is someone you know over 80 with existing comorbidities and the threat that, that COVID poses to kids is far, far, far less. What have we paid basically to save these quality adjusted life years? And how does that amount compare to what we normally spend to save people from heart attacks, cancer, stroke, you know, the other things that afflict older people and, and kill us in much larger numbers than COVID. So Gigi, as you'd know, economic evaluation has a number of strengths and weaknesses. How it is used in a society varies. And so one of the good things about Australia is that uh, before a drug is listed on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, there's an economic evaluation and we make some sort of trade-offs and we make a decision to list it on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme if the incremental benefit in terms of quality adjusted life years is higher than the incremental cost. Now, one of the areas where economic evaluation fails is when we begin to have identified lives. The so-called rule of rescue comes to the fore. And when you are dealing with small numbers, as Australia was last year in terms of deaths, society doesn't like the idea of putting an economic value on an individual's life. And in fact, there's a lot of sloppy thinking in terms of talking about the economic value of life uh, because it's easy to have language which is about putting a value on an individual uh, or the worth of an individual person rather than the incremental value of an additional life lived with a particular circumstances. So I think in Australia last year, we were more in the area of rule of rescue type thinking and small numbers and beginning to talk about individual deaths and individual people when I think the Australian public is very uncomfortable about using economic evaluation in those terms, in those circumstances. How many lives would the New South Wales roadmap, which reopens way sooner than what you're suggesting, it uh, starts reopening at 70%, 70 to, to 80% of uh, the over 16s, which is a it's barely over half of the New South Wales population. How many lives might that cost? And also the uh, the federal reopening plan, which is the same for the entire nation, compared to the the two to three thousand that uh, you think your plan would cost. Well, there's problems with both of them. Uh, the New South Wales plan is opening at a very low level of COVID uh, vaccinations. And you move quite quickly from a, an economic discussion to an ethical discussion because what we're seeing, if New South Wales projections are right, then mid-October is when they expect to hit the 70% of the population vaccinated. And we've still got problems of supply of vaccines. So the demand for vaccinations exceeds the supply. And so come the middle of October, you're still having people who are in that 30% unvaccinated who would have liked to have been vaccinated. So the government is saying, yeah, even though it is our fault that you're not vaccinated because there wasn't enough supply, we're going to expose you to COVID because we've decided 70% is the right number. And I would have to say, I think that's unethical. On The Economists on our end, we're examining the awful choices we might soon have to make, might now be making, 
about COVID and we're about to be joined by someone who knows better than most how to get such choices right. Peter Harris was, until 2018, Chairman of the Productivity Commission and for much of last year was Chief Executive Officer of the National COVID-19 Coordination Commission. In one of his final acts as Head of the Productivity Commission, he produced a roadmap for how to advance Australia, which, as it happened, concentrated on health. Peter, thank you for joining us too. G'day, Peter. How are you going? Where do you stand on the question of trade-offs? Have we reached the point in your view, where we have to make them? Well, in fact, your previous discussion indicates we've been making trade-offs the whole way through. Let's not deny the fact that, as Gigi was pointing out, there's a clear cost to the kinds of lockdowns and curfews and quarantine processes and border closures we went through last year. That's a trade-off. In return for that, we did save lives. There's little doubt we saved lives, but we didn't do the analysis that Gigi was pointing out. And we still haven't really, and in fact, we're reluctant to do so. And I do agree with Stephen at one point uh, on the question of turning this into a, a value of a human life. Uh, I worked for a long time in my past career on road safety issues. We do the same kind of calculation there, but we never let it be the ultimate arbiter of a decision. In the end, it's more a question of the, the level of degree. Does the road safety initiative justify the, uh, the cost um, that's otherwise incurred by offsetting it with a cost of a life, uh, not particularly a life that's uh, not lived with injury. So there are balances in these things. We're making trade-offs all the way through. What we're now going to have to do is make them far more explicit. In particular, we're in a funny position. Unlike the rest of the developed world, which attempted to live with COVID whilst imposing various restrictions, us in New Zealand... Uh, ran a policy which said we could have zero. Now, when you're coming out of zero, it's going to be very hard to convince the public that it's progress to say, well, it's no longer zero. In fact, it's some deaths because we're going the opposite direction to the rest of the world who are saying it was mega deaths and now it's far fewer. And so we can come out, <laughs> come out of this restrictive process. So, Peter, it sounds to me like there's a lot of talk about what the public will accept and how it sounds and what the appetite is in the public rather than really doing the, the trade-offs and then deciding, look, the public needs to be warmed to this notion, this best policy that we've decided based on cost benefits. So one of the things I've recommended sometimes in my conversations with both people and the government is that instead of just talking about COVID deaths, we talk about deaths to other things as well, because as you know, most people, the vast majority of people don't die of COVID, they die of, you know, cancers or strokes or heart attacks or whatnot. And some of those deaths have gone up during this whole COVID period. So could we maybe start reporting total deaths during a day rather than just COVID deaths? Would that help the public to get warmed up to the idea that we need to move on? I'm going to guess not. Gigi, I hate to disappoint you because I am inclined more to your um, uh, version of, of events through last year. But I've been interested from the start in this question of excess deaths, which you know is a, a measure. Uh, the Economist uh, tracks this. In Australia, through last year, 
our excess deaths were negative. That is, we had fewer overall deaths whilst we suppressed the virus because, of course, we suppressed, amongst other things, flu, which kills a lot of people, and probably road accidents. Anyway, the bottom line is, no, I wouldn't concentrate on the deaths. I, I, I will go back and, and agree with you on this point, though, and I've, I've had something to say on this in the last few months, and it's been pretty unpopular everywhere I've said it, so it's probably going to be unpopular on this program too. But we instituted a command and control response when the COVID outbreak occurred. And that's a natural thing to do in a crisis. Command and control is bushfires. Command and control, you know, is in floods. Command and control in COVID is not a surprise. But we never deviated from it. We've run curfews. We've run lockdowns. We've run forced quarantines. We've run border closures. All of this is command and control. When we finally had a vaccine rollout, we ran it via a military process. So command and control is a philosophy that I think works quite well when you don't have uh, a sophisticated understanding of the nature of the problem. But we've had 18 months to get a sophisticated understanding of the problem and we really haven't moved in a planning sense away from command and control at all. And that's quite disappointing. It seems to me, Peter, that, that in fact the control by default has been given to one Premier, not to the National Cabinet, not to uh, the premiers together, but uh, by allowing things to run, uh, perhaps inadvertently, in one state and now planning to reopen quite a lot in one state when a lot of the population is unvaccinated. In a sense, New South Wales, she is making the decision for the whole country. Is that what's happened? Inevitably, because if the articulation from our leadership, which has been pretty homogenous until uh, roughly June with the outbreak in New South Wales, along the lines that we could get to zero and maintain it, persisted in the, in the light of what was in New South Wales, it would be shown to be false. So what the New South Wales Premier did was what she had to do. She had to admit that zero was an unlikely target ever to be attained again because of the severe infectiousness of the Delta variant, the fact that people could be infectious you know, within 48 hours of collecting the infection from somebody else meant you couldn't really track it readily with contact tracing once you've got very large numbers of, of people contracting the virus. And now Victoria has had to adjust to this as well. And so as a consequence, they've been sort of mugged by reality, by the infectiousness of, of Delta. Now, between New South Wales and Victoria, Peter, I would disagree with you that New South Wales Premier is on her own anymore in this, but between New South Wales and Victoria, it's a substantial part of the Australian economy. And there is, it seems to me, a reasonable chance that some agreement could be struck between the two jurisdictions as to how they would progress together on this. And that's my substitute for command and control. That's what I call cooperative behaviour. And it used to be, once upon a time, long ago when I used to work in the Commonwealth Government, that that was one of the great skills of the Commonwealth, an effective coordination role amongst jurisdictions. Now, we don't have that from the Commonwealth at the moment. It's a pity but we could substitute for it between New South Wales and Victoria. Stephen Duckett, I'm wondering whether Peter Harris is right, sort of, that this will have to go through the country or whether we'll have to divide the country into two, New South Wales and Victoria and the rest. There's virtually no COVID in South Australia, virtually none in Tasmania, virtually none in Taiwan, virtually none in New Zealand, whether we will have to have two Australias. I think so, Peter. That is, if I were the Premier of Western Australia or the Premier of Tasmania, I would not be opening the borders to the plague states, even though today was the day I was supposed to hop on a plane and fly to Broome for a holiday 
Unfortunately, uh, the border is closed and I can't. And I support that decision. I think if I were the Premier of Western Australia, I would not want me coming into this, into the state. So I think we will have these two different worlds within Australia, the, the COVID zero world, which will continue for a little while until we have enough of the population, the whole population vaccinated. Western Australia should open its borders then. Uh, but if I were Western Australia, I wouldn't open their borders before that. It sounds very um, scary to me, actually, the idea that we would want to promote a divided Australia, particularly when there's no uh, elucidated end game. I mean, are we just thinking that half of Australians are going to have to keep having boosters every few months and the other half will, will never have to have a shot? Or how, how would that work? There was an interesting paper put out by the IMF in the middle of the year, uh, which estimated what proportion of the world population based around the current production of accepted vaccines would have any chance at all of being vaccinated by the end of 2022. And that number was 60%. So here's the thing for Western Australia and Tasmania. You can cut yourself off from the rest of Australia. You're going to have to persist in cutting yourself off from the rest of the world as well. Uh, and, and that will go on beyond what I think might be the timeframes that politicians are implying. That is, it'll go on till 2023 or later. Now, perhaps that'll still be a desirable outcome for the Premier of Western Australia and the Premier of Tasmania. It's a judgment that they'll have to make. But I don't think it, it's enough to simply pretend that the border domestically in Australia is the real border. It's the rest of the world that will still be engaged in fighting this pandemic, well beyond the kind of timeframes that our premiers have implied. And that says you're misleading your population if you say you can make it to zero. You're misleading them. Stephen? Let us assume you don't have a vaccine for kids under 12. And I don't think that's true. I think we will have a vaccine for kids under 12 early in the new year. But let's assume you don't. If we hit 90% of people over 12, we should be able to hit that rate, about 80% of those or 90% of people over 12 being vaccinated by March or so of next year. And that's, I think, when it we should be saying, Folks, this is now a vaccinated world. There will be outbreaks, there will be deaths, but we're going to go back to essentially a normal life with some public health protections, masks on public transport, better ventilation in schools, for example, rapid antigen testing in schools. But this is what the living with COVID looks like without huge deaths from COVID. I am wondering whether we're right to look at these trade-offs as they are, but whether there's the potential for a big breakthrough, another one and another one that will nail this and we will, in two or three years' time, perhaps think that we, we were hand-wringing over things we uh, didn't need to. Uh, Peter first. Well, I've just described to you that the world population won't get those mRNA vaccines for a couple of years yet. So please, let's not pretend that a breakthrough somewhere in the US tomorrow for some spectacular discovery that utterly suppresses this virus forever will go around the world through eight odd, nine odd billion people and, and protect us from this virus in a swift fashion. It won't happen. Meantime, we are running command and control measures which imply to people that if only we get through this next lockdown, we'll be fine. That's wrong. Stephen Duckett. There's been dramatic changes in, for example, uh, most obviously uh, vaccines. The, the question back in March of last year was not 
when the vaccine would come, but if a vaccine would come. Uh, but there's been also massive improvements in treatments for COVID. The way COVID is treated now is quite different from the way COVID was treated then. So lots of positives that have occurred and then probably will occur into the future. But there's a negative as well. That is, uh, viruses mutate. There will be another strain and there will be another dominant strain that spreads faster than Delta. The question we don't know is whether that's going to be worse than Delta or not. And if it is worse, the question is, will the current vaccines protect against it? And so things could get much worse and they could get much better. These are things that are unknown but need to be planned for. Stephen Duckett, Head of the Grattan Institute's Health and Aged Care Program, and Peter Harris, former Head of the Productivity Commission, for sharing thoughts about a field which is very squarely that of economics, trade-offs, Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks a lot. Head to The Economist's website for lots of links related to the trade-offs in COVID policy. And that's where you can find all of the shows in this series and the earlier four series again. But that's it for now. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Next week, Richard Aidey returns with The Money. This wouldn't have been possible without our extraordinary producer, Belinda Summer, who makes sure that what we're saying makes sense to non-economists and does a lot more besides. And even though we don't always agree, Peter, it has Wouldn't been a pleasure to. to work with you <laughs> trying to uh, bring economic thinking to the person on the street in a form she can use to think for herself. Bye-bye for now. Me too. Bye-bye.